We've all heard the saying, happy wife, happy life. But what does it really mean? Does it mean that in a heterosexual marriage, the husband is solely responsible for the success of the relationship? Does it mean that the wife is the only barometer of the relationship status that matters? Well, it turns out the answer is kind of neither. And maybe the phrase has no real meaning in real life. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications person for the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. A major international study dealing with relationship satisfaction is just wrapped up, looking at which members of heterosexual relationships are the best judges of where that relationship is headed. And it turns out that neither women nor men can predict the future success of their relationships uh, any better than the other. Joining me once again for this episode today is the CPA's Membership and Association Development Lead, Catherine McLaren, as a co-host and, of course, one of the researchers responsible for this recent study. Let's meet Dr. Harasimchuk. My name is Dr. Cheryl Harasimchuk. I'm a professor at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada, in the Department of Psychology. Yeah, and I study how people uh, maintain happiness in their long-term relationships. Yes, and that's what we want to talk about today. You've written an interesting article in the conversation about the notion of happy wife, happy life. And I don't know if you would go so far as to call that a myth or sort of a trope that we go by uh, in our daily lives, but you hear it all the time. Uh, there's a guy in my fantasy football league who's named his team happy wife, happy life. Because, uh, <laughs> hey. I guess he really wants to hammer home the message, but uh, is it a myth? Is it a trope? What, what is it exactly? Well, it's definitely a long-held saying, um, not not just held by lay people, but also relationship researchers as well. It's interesting to see that um, while that particular phrase is not used in when in uh, research articles, the idea that women have somehow have this special ability to detect when things are going well or not going well in the relationship, this is something that that has been long held by by academics as well, and so it's a common saying. And we found some evidence to suggest that perhaps there's a better one that we could be using. And the better one that you suggested is happy spouse, happy house, uh, which is more inclusive. Is that because there's nothing that rhymes with husband? Yeah, that's 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 why. Um, but also, it's it's a little bit of both, just like you mentioned. It, it's a, a bit more uh, inclusive. Right. It reflects just this idea of partners in relationship and addresses the idea that, uh, you know, even though it's fun to talk about gender differences in relationship, a lot of what we find in in our area is that that the differences aren't as large as people think or if they are or they're not there at all. Right. Now, in your study, you say you surveyed thousands of mixed gender couples. Uh, is that only male and female couples or people identifying as male and female in those couples? Yeah, exactly. So this mixed gender, uh, we, we recruited, um, I was part of an international team led by Dr. Matthew Johnson, who's a professor of family science at the University of Alberta. And we recruited um, over 50,000 Uh, relationship satisfaction reports from what we call mixed gender couples. What that means is that within each couple, there was someone that identified as a woman and someone that identified as a man. And you found that the predictor of later relationship satisfaction 
uh, was not solely the, you know, uh, opinion of the woman that made the difference, right? That the opinion of the man and the couple made the difference uh, just as much over the long term. Can you just tell me a little bit more about that? Uh, like, what was the method you used and, and how did you come to that conclusion? Yeah, so um, I was part of of a team that recruited uh, over 900 mixed gender couples from the community. And what we did is we tracked them every day for 21 days. And we did this online and each member of the couple completed a little short survey. And then another group of researchers um, had over 3000 mixed gender couples and they were as these couples were assessed annually over five years. So what we do is we get people from the community and we have them fill out these short online uh, questionnaires. And so, yes, like you mentioned, we didn't find these gender differences that the, the common saying would suggest uh, happy wife, happy life. A more scientific way of describing it would be the barometer hypothesis, this, that idea that the women serve as, as the as the barometers and, and they're better able to judge the satisfaction levels. So yeah, there we, we didn't find these gender differences. And then just stepping back, the bigger picture is, is that relationship satisfaction, it goes up and down each day. And if things are going well one day, it's likely that it's going to be going well the next day and perhaps down the road. Alternatively, if things are not going well in the relationship one day, it's likely to have some sort of carryover effects to the next day and, and further into the future. And we didn't find, contrary to the women as barometers of relationship satisfaction hypothesis, we didn't find that uh, women were better at um, were better predictors of relationship satisfaction. It was the case that both men and women had equal predictive power of what was going to happen in the future in terms of how their relationship was going. Did you find that um, you found that you were finding similar responses regardless of the age of participants? Ah. There's a lot of conversation about how um, the younger generations are much less likely to be defined by gender norms, things like emotion and, and, and emotional intelligence. Yeah, oh, that's an excellent question. And it makes a lot of sense. This wasn't a main part of the paper. And if it was done, it might have been one of the other team members who looked into it. I wouldn't. Uh, it's common for us to look in our research at age, relationship length, and uh, and gender. It just happened to be that gender was the focus of this one. So I don't have a, I, don't, I don't have an answer for you. But what you what you propose there makes a lot of sense. No, I assume that when you send these questionnaires out, the participants are answering them separately in a blind way, right? Because I feel like if I were sitting next to my wife <laughs> and she said, oh, things are really not going very well, that I would have some pause and then say to myself, wait, maybe, well, maybe they're not. And then I might answer in a more negative way than I had anticipated answering uh, prior to uh, receiving the yeah. question. Right? Oh, you, you are totally correct, Eric. The participants, like, so each couple member is, is sent a link to their own private email accounts and they are asked to complete the little survey independently each day, right? So they're not supposed to have their partner looking over them because I agree with you. Uh, it will likely change the responses if, if they were uh, A, filling it out together or e, if they were in close proximity. No, they don't want to, a couple member doesn't want to get in trouble for, uh, for putting down a negative rating for the day. And it strikes me that the notion of women as barometers for the relationship comes from a different place in the science, right? You're talking about this notion in science over the years that women have a greater, uh, I guess, emotional understanding of relationships and that sort of thing. Whereas in the culture in general, I think the, the phrase happy wife, happy life uh, sort of believes that the women's perception of their relationships is more accurate 
than men because men have a wider variety of outcomes that can lead to happiness. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense, right? The prevailing sentiment seems to be men need less to be happy. And I think a lot of that comes from sitcoms. Yeah, the origins of these sayings, it's hard to pinpoint where, but we have a few different ideas. Like one could be related to a social psychological perspective related to gender roles. This idea that what we grow up with, what we grow up seeing, like you said, in sitcoms, what we see with our family members, that how we observe others relating to each other, we sort of adopt this as a truth. Like, oh, this is, must be the way things go. And so if we continually hear sayings like, happy wife, happy life. Or if we hear sayings like, I'm not sure if there's a saying with this, but just this idea that women are sorry, men need less to be happy in a relationship, then, you know, you start to just take it as as a truth. And what I love about my job is that we can take these common sayings, and we can actually, you know, test them and gather evidence to offer our opinion on the matter. Right. Now, I'm picturing one day down the road, a sitcom being created based on this new understanding of relationships. This sort of upends the current sitcom dynamic, right? The current (laughs) dynamic being that the wife in the couple is, you know, ethereally beautiful and incredibly smart and has a handle on all of the emotional stability in the relationship. And the guy is some idiot doofus who's lucky to have her or probably doesn't deserve her. And the plot line is always that he's done something to screw up and has to make it up. And, uh, you know, she ends up being the decider of whether his effort to make it up is worthy of them continuing in a relationship. And that's like the the constant, easy, I guess, script that you can write uh, for sitcoms. Do, Do you think that actually does damage to our perceptions of relationships you know, uh, there's a lot of studies about watching porn does damage to your perception of sexuality, right? Does watching a sitcom change the way that you might approach your own relationship? Yeah. So I won't talk about it from the way of, you know, like, does it cause damage? But I'd rather frame it in terms of like the good that can come from showing varied perspectives and showing like having a sitcom where it was emphasis on more on the shared responsibility and having all these different, like a variety of views of how relationships go. Because I don't want to take away from the fact that there are some relationships where it is the case where a woman might, the woman in the relationship might be better at figuring out what things are going on. But I also believe that there are other relationships where the man might be better at it. Um, or, you know, maybe more, most of the case, it might be that they are, they're both kind of good at it, at figuring out what's going on. So this is why I get excited when there are, you know, movies and TV shows or books or different perspectives that just give a broader idea and not just giving us the same old, same old, which can be kind of comforting, right? You can kind of like, oh, this is how life is supposed to be. Just kind of follow this along. But, you know, a lot of people want to make some change. And as an example, if the, the happy wife, happy life saying, I mean, it sounds good on the surface of it, right? You know, like you try, this is supposed to be quick advice. You're making your, uh, the, the one of your, your partner very happy. But then there are some dark sides of this. One of the dark sides is that it seems like it's the woman's responsibility to notice when something is going uh, wrong and to fix it. And, or if, and if the relationship isn't going well, that it doesn't really have anything to do with uh, the man in the relationship. Uh, you know, and as you mentioned before, it might be the case like, well, man doesn't need as much. And I haven't um, encountered any evidence to suggest that I have in the literature. It seems like it's a 
there's interdependence. Both both partners matter. Uh, but the the conversation of like gender roles and everything is beyond my scope. And and, and like uh, there's people that really make that their expertise. But I just just know a little bit of it how it applies in relationships. It feels like the uh, the saying really upholds this belief that men and people who identify as male are passive players in romantic mm-hmm. relationships and household relationships. Their um, opinions, feelings, and actions don't serve in the same way that those of the person who identifies as female. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't have said it better. So yeah, that that's one of the dark sides of if there is an existing belief that that, that men in these mixed gendered relationships, that their opinion doesn't count essentially because it's going to all driven by the women in, in the relationship, then they might just, you know, rest and wait for things to happen. When meanwhile, a relationship is a two-way street, you know, and they could go so much smoother if, if both people sort of stepped up and, and, and contributed. But again, I, I guess I want to be careful. You know, I'm, I'm really not in the business of, of should. I'm in, I'm in the business of describing what we see in our, in our samples. So it's really up to other people to, to really make those comments. It's just inevitably when doing research, especially one like this, right, that really hits home for a lot of people, inevitably people ask about, well, what does this mean? What can we do? And I'd like to talk about the implications. I like to, you know, dream big and, and think about what that could be. But ultimately, it's up to somebody else to, to work, uh, work out these other details about what we should be doing and... Uh, and how specifically to apply these things. So what is the big dream then? What's the, you know, what's the biggest thing that you think can come out of this? The biggest thing that I took away from this is that it's a shared responsibility to mind the relationship in term, in this particular study, you know, like I said before, relationship satisfaction goes up and down on a daily basis. It changes. And it's not just up to one member to notice that. It's, it will, it's the case that in the least in mixed gender relationships, both people are, a, their, 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 predict, or their assessment of the relationship is equally predictive of what's going to happen down the road. And so shared responsibility and, and also underscores the importance of interdependence, this two-way street idea um, that is I influence my partner and my partner influences me. Right. And you mentioned that, uh, you know, it fluctuates, right? Uh, relationship satisfaction goes up and down on a daily basis uh, all the time, right? And the way that you're you're presenting this is that if a person feels higher than usual relationship satisfaction on one particular day, then that feeling seems to carry over into the next day and then even the next year and the next five years, which indicates some kind of momentum, right? Like if the satisfaction is higher than usual, then there's a better chance of that sparking some momentum for it to be a better relationship. That seems to be more likely than what I might describe as regression to the mean. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So what, what this suggests in terms of like day to day terms is that when things are going well in your relationship or like you said, better than you, better than their usual, right? Everyone has their own bar, what they set for what makes for a good relationship. And if it's above their usual, then it's not time to take a rest. You know, like if you just had a really great date night, it's not time to take a little break and say, oh, things are good. I'm just going to be put on myself on cruise mode. It's time to double down and maybe make plans for your next fun and exciting activity to do together. On the other hand, if things aren't going well, it's time to act now because it could you know, any little changes you make in terms of, you know, maybe working on how you handle conflict, trying to find ways to de-escalate it, 
or thinking of ways to express more gratitude or doing more fun and exciting things with your partner. Like that could have, you can turn it around is that that's the hopeful message that because it goes up and down, there are certain things that you can do to maintain your relationship in a a healthier and happier way. Now, does the actual action of taking this survey of evaluating your happiness in the relationship, does that have an effect on the way that you approach the relationship? I I don't imagine you studied that specifically, but I can't imagine that it wouldn't. Yeah, oh, I'd love to study that. I think it's really interesting if you're, if, as an example, in the, the part of this project that I was involved in, where we recruited couples, mixed-gender couples from the community, we tracked them every day for 21 days. So each day for those 21 days, they had like, how was your relationship going? Did you express gratitude? You know, like, we had there, this, we had, there was a, a, extra questions besides what was presented in the study, right? These are, these are big ones. So I, I feel like the, the daily self-reflection on how your relationship is going. I mean, it makes sense that you might be, you might want to try out some new good things that you've read about in the survey, right? So that's an empirical question about whether actually participating in the studies and thinking about your relationship, whether that could lead to increased relationship quality. I think that'd be a really neat study to do. And in fact, I've had some, um, in terms of anecdotal evidence, where some of the participants were, were mentioning that at the end of the study, they mentioned that participating in it together gave them new ideas. It helped them to be more aware of some of the things that they could be thinking about in their relationship. And in some ways, it was like a, it was a way to grow together, you know, like r- rather than just going on an exciting date night, here was some way where that over the three-week period, they could go through a similar experience. And maybe they talked about it at dinner. Maybe they talked about it at the end, even though the, all their responses were private as they were doing it. I, I think, yeah, I, th- I think that reflecting on your, on your relationship and getting some good tips can potentially be good. Although need to sort that out, like do a study. It does sound kind of lovely and as though it would be a positive influence. Just, just even that daily or occasional trigger of like, oh, am I practicing gratitude in my relationship? Mm-hmm. I, I can imagine how that would help and yeah. would, would really create space for some of that beauty. Yeah, because one of the takeaways is, is that it's important to take stock of your relationship, given that the relationship satisfaction levels go up and down, and given the importance of being aware of how things are going, you know, and that you could change the relationship path. Yeah, I, I think I think it could potentially have some good, and I'm happy about that because I like to discover what's going on in the community, but I wouldn't want to be doing it in a way that made things made things worse. So the idea that this could have. Uh, have some benefits. All of this being said, is that if people have life stressors going on, it's one thing to know about and reflect on it. But when you're in the moment, you're hungry, you're stressed, you're tired, it's, it might be harder to implement some of these, these good things. But I think overall, you might, people might come out ahead. Eric and I did a podcast uh, interview the other day about mindfulness in sexual health and happiness. And we were talking about the uh, a workbook that accompanied the research. And it feels like this is another opportunity where a workbook would be so fantastic just to kind of sit down and for people who, you know, journal, um, yeah. have those questions to guide you through just the thought exercise and how that could just improve the, just the thought exercise, how it could improve your relationship. Or- yeah. I, and I think it would be good, especially for people that are like, 
average level of satisfaction or above, because if things aren't going well, you might not want to want, want to be journaling as I mean, actually that's, that's the time be, to... there probably could be good things from journaling. I, again, I'm not a clinical psychologist. I don't do that. Maybe there is some good, but just the, maybe the daily reminder of what you're, if you had to think about what is your partner doing well today or not so well, and you had the constant reminders, but again, maybe, maybe there's something I don't understand because I'm not in the, uh, the, the specifically the helping people business. I wonder, uh, is there a difference when you're doing this study between people who are, uh, you know, Catherine asked about ages, right? Older people versus younger people and that sort of thing. Is there a difference uh, that you found or did you look at this between people who are married, people who are living common law, people who are not living together? I don't know off the top of my head. It seems like if we were, I I don't, I don't think, I'm not sure if we specified that or we looked into whether it mattered, whether they were uh, married or not. But again, that could be another one of those things when you do a big team project and the focus is on gender, um, might not, uh, I don't know the answer off my top of the head to, uh, to whether that made a difference. So it wasn't, it wasn't a central part. I imagine if it was, if there was some great differences, maybe we would want to make a little comment about that, but that didn't, that didn't show up. And at least, at least in my work that I do, not necessarily related to this project. I don't always get enough people in each of the categories to do a good enough assessment, but even with, even taking that into consideration, I haven't noticed large differences, at least in what, in what I study. It's important to remember that when we are doing these studies, we're recruiting people that are volunteering to be in these studies, right? So there might be some certain characteristics of the people that volunteer that might, you know, uh, go over and above any differences that might have in, in terms of their relationship status, whether they're married or common law. But again, it's an empirical question that might be good to look at. Yeah. You mentioned stressors, right? Uh, external stressors that are going to impact uh, a relationship. COVID obviously is a huge one. Uh, changed the dynamics of many, many relationships. Something else to like, maybe uh, financial security, right? Uh, if you're broke, you're both going to be equally stressed about it at the same time, presumably. What happens when one partner takes on more of that stress than the other partner, right? Especially in terms of maybe something like financial security, where one partner is the person who makes more money and maybe she has more of that on her shoulders than, than the male partner does, right? The takeaway that I had from the other project is that, you know, the idea of it being a shared responsibility and there's interdependence in a two-way street, that doesn't mean that there aren't these differences that exist within a relationship separate from gender, right? So there could somebody that has more power, somebody that has more stress, somebody that has to, um, you know, if something's not going well for a partner, let's say they're sick, let's say a close family member is ill, you know, they need their partner to step up and, and help them out and, and, you know, uh, you know, maybe carry a little more weight around the house just to, to make it a, a little easier for them. I'm wondering if, if this, I mean, being in this research position, doing the research that you do and dealing with the things that you deal with, how does that affect your day-to-day life? Like, how do you approach your relationship in a different way? Or do you, you know, would you participate in this study if somebody else were doing it? Oh, these, these are great questions. Um, so it's hard to tell whether, you know, because I'm so immersed in this, like I've been doing relationship science now, if I consider when I was a student for 20 years, it's hard to know what, what Cheryl would be like if I wasn't immersed in all this. But I guess if I had to really step back and get an outsider opinion, I mean, I don't see how it, how it can't be influencing the way I think about my relationships. Like I'm a bit more, I might be more aware than some others about 
that some of the little tricks you can do, the little da- the things that don't seem like much, like, like gratitude, trying something new with your partner, if they share good news with you, reciprocating the good energy, or being mindful of the ways that you can de-escalate conflict. I mean, maybe I might, I might be more likely to do them or have more tools in my tool belt. All of this being said is that I am human. And let's say if I'm tired or if I'm hangry, um, then, then, then my gut reaction might not always be the good thing, the, all the good things that I tell people that are helpful for their relationship. So I might, I might have, what are some differences? I might have fancier names for some of the things that many of my other couples are doing, you know, they're, they're already doing these things. They just don't have, they're not calling it self-expansion as an example. Right. And, is yeah. there a, oh, sorry. Is there a <laughs> fancier name for hangry? I think it's a perfect name. I just it, think it, it really, really is. Like, is not as descriptive as it gets. I love that. <laughs> it captures it very well. Yeah. Oh, and in terms of doing the study, uh, that's a good question. I I think that would be great for my partner and I to participate in a study like this to be a bit, you know, to increase our awareness of maybe what's going well, what isn't going well or as well, and maybe it could be a conversation starter. Right. There's something a little comforting in the knowledge that um, even the people who are armed with the tools and the knowledge and the words uh, still know they might not be perfect when they're hangry and tired. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, oh, yeah, no, I am perfect. What am I talking about? Yes, of course. All this training has made me perfect. <laughs> Just please. Yeah, I want my partner to know that, too. <laughs> we will put it in the notes. Okay. <laughs> Yes, that will go in the show notes. Cheryl is perfect. And uh, no notes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, where where do you go from here? You've completed this study. You've determined that, you know, no one partner in a relationship is a better predictor than the other or can be expected to be a better predictor than the other. Although I am I'm wondering, uh, before we get to what comes next, I am wondering if you found in doing this, if very often one partner was a better predictor of what came next, regardless of their gender, right? If uh, generally speaking, there is one of the two people in the relationship who is a better barometer than the other as to where it's going. Oh, I think that's an excellent question. Yeah, because this picks up on what we were talking about before, how there are people play different roles within the relationship. And I'm not, yeah, they they play different roles and they might take on different... uh, emotional responsibilities in a relationship at different times, right? It, it, there's, there's so much, it's such a dynamic, uh, such a dynamic thing. What we do when we do a big study like this is we say ahead of time what we're going to test. And the focus here was to tackle the idea that the, the women as barometers. And so we focused all of our energy on that. And I don't believe that we, we for all of these different with couples that we had, over 4,000 mixed-gendered couples, I'm not sure whether we looked at or whether the other team members looked at patterns of like, what percentage of these couples have a person that regularly is the one who is maybe the better person, right? Separate from gender. I, that's like a whole, this is what's so fun about what we do. Yeah is that, you know, you think, okay, this is, this is a big enough project just to focus on this. And you're like, and as you get into, you're like, oh, but that's another interesting question. So yeah, I, I, I didn't look at that and I'm not aware of the other team members looking at that, but that might be something they're, they're looking at. 
Terrific. Okay, so what comes next? Do you build off this study and do something else, or are you going to start working on something completely new? Ah, great question. So I was fortunate to be a team member here. I was invited by Dr. Matthew Johnson to be a part of it. So this is his main area that he is focusing on for research. But what the reason why I was invited to be a team member is because I'm study how people maintain happiness in their established relationships. And so what's next for me is to do more of a deep dive in terms of the good things people do in their established relationships to keep them going strong and for them to have a bit of spark. So as an example, one thing that I look at is how people maintain a sense of growth and passion and novelty and excitement in their relationship. And what I've done in the past was looked at things like date nights, like the exciting things they can do together to give them new perspectives of their relationship and, you know, keep the spark alive. But the new direction I'm taking things is about what you do on your own time with your work, your hobbies, uh, your volunteering, and how that might shape the growth of the relationship. So, for example, like over the course of the dinner table, you know, if, if sometimes, you know, you don't have a lot of interesting things to share. And then it might kind of makes it seem like, ah, oh, the relationship's kind of losing its, its uh, spark. But you could imagine if you just spent, you know, a day working on a hobby, let's say you'd gone uh, kayaking for the day and you saw all sorts of interesting birds, and then you could bring those stories up at the dinner table. This might be another way to add some growth and novelty and excitement that doesn't necessarily involve the couple members coordinating the activity and finding something they both like, which can be challenging. This way, at times, it's another tool in their tool belt. You go off, you work on yourself, some personal growth, and then as long as you share it with your partner, it can help to create the sense that, ooh, our relationship is moving forward and it's a, it's a, it's a happy place to be. Catherine is getting married in like a year. Right. Right. So I, I'm bringing her on here as uh, some sort of, you know, premarital advice, which is okay. what you're giving now. You know, I, oh, like no. you, I am in a long term relationship where I also am perfect. I'd like to state that just because I am not yet married, it doesn't mean I'm not yet perfect. OK, we can be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is true well we're all perfect but uh you know perhaps (laughs) some advice for our spouses or spouses to be uh you know maybe we'll close with a few tips then from your long history of research right what does spice up a date night what is something that you can do on a date night that you might not otherwise do that makes it uh more interesting for both people yeah. So more broadly, I think, um, again, uh, the, the people that are in counseling, they could provide, they, they are trained to take in the broader scope of things and provide good advice. But like you mentioned, just what are, what's my, what are my two cents after yeah. being, uh, yeah. do, re, do, reading all these articles and doing this research? Well, I think it's important to, um, be mindful of your expectations and communicate that with your partner. Like what, what, what do you expect in terms of, you know, for recreation, for finances, where you want to live, like sort those all, those things out. But I'll just speak specific to my research. The key thing here is that there isn't a set list of things that will make your relationship happy. It's what you think is, is as an example, exciting or novel. And so what might have happened during the pandemic for many people is that they might have set the bar lower. They might have just gone into protection mode and say, well, maybe if we order out food from a different place or go for a walk around a different block, that this will meet, you know, 
meet the excitement quota. So in terms of that relates to my advice for what people can do in their relationship is that it's important that that both members find something they like to do. And it's specific to that relationship. So some couples, they might like going skydiving. They might like going on adventures around the world. And other couples, they might like going uh, on nature hike or they might like going to a play. And as long as it meets their criteria for what is novel and exciting, that's, that's really all, all that matters. And so I just think a nice discussion between both couple members, what they like to do is good. And then related to my other research is that it doesn't all have to be about what you do together. Sometimes it's about personal growth and then sharing it with your partner, maybe introducing them to little parts of your life outside of uh, the confines of the dinner table. That makes perfect sense. I like it. I, my wife recently discovered that one of her favorite things is watching The Bachelor in Paradise while <laughs> I complain about it. Right. She finds my complaints about the show more entertaining, perhaps, than the show itself. And as such, that's become a thing that we do. And then I'll go off on my own and I'll watch some baseball. And then I'm going to tell her what Shohei Otane did. (laughs) And she's going to feign interest. And that's going to be a thing that we do. Okay. Every relationship has their own dynamics. eh? (laughs) I will say that Kyle and I do the same thing, but I'm not watching Bachelor in Paradise. I'm watching community productions of Phantom of the Opera. So, you know, everybody's got their niche. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, one day we will all collaborate on a sitcom that takes into account all of the things that we've discussed here today. uh, And it will be a smash hit in Canada. We'll hire <laughs> actors from Schitt's Creek, and that, that will be our thing, I think. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Cheryl, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about this today. Uh, it's been wonderful having you on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I've had a, I've had a lot of fun talking about the research and then just about relationships in general. Thanks to Dr. Andrew Kim, Chair of the Addiction Psychology Section at the CPA, and to Dr. Nassim Tabri, research psychologist specializing in addiction at Carleton University. We had this conversation in preparation for Psychology Month back in February, and the profile I wrote on the addiction psychology section is available on the CPA website. The link is in the show notes to this podcast episode. Today's episode was written, hosted, and published by me, Eric Bowman. It was produced and edited by Jamie Montgomery, and our theme song is Avenues by David Taylor. 